Let me just read from here. Um, friend claims I'm not bi because I don't find Goku sexually attractive. Hmm. No, okay. This is the that's the part that I want to really uh, drill into because I think yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a fundamental mis- misunderstanding about the nature of bisexuality, which okay. is not you're attracted to both conventionally attractive men and conventionally attracted women. It's that you're right. attracted to total weirdos regardless of gender. You know, <laughs> so right. this idea that Correct. if you're not attracted to like the standard canon of attractive people, then you don't count as bi is is complete mm. nonsense. It also depends on like how how big Goku is at the time. See, right? there we go. Because here's the thing is like, you know, you have to understand that people can be of various sizes. And with Goku in particular, he could be of various sizes mm. in very close uh, temporal proximity. Right. Like because okay. he can eat so much food. Mm. And if you just give him like a lot, like 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 a lot of food all at once, then yeah. he starts to get bigger right in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. And that. Mm-hmm is well let's say it's romantically intriguing at the very least i really yeah. i want to pile on with that because i think yeah. uh i think a sort of well, un- well <laughs> here's the thing if you try to pile on goku's gonna be like i don't know i've already eaten so much yeah but yeah. he can I mean, handle it as has been he discussed can. oh he can it, it, regardless yeah. of his protests and he'll say no no not, not even not a bigger pile i just <laughs> ate the last pile and, and, but well, you just keep giving him piles. No, I'm, I, I, I just think that I don't know. Goku to me is just he's like Superman a little bit. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to fuck Superman because I fear for my life in like a, not like in a fun way, but in a like just sheer like power level way. A sheer He'd power level way. Me. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not over 5,000. Five. Five. So many possible worlds. Welcome to the worst of all possible worlds, the first and only podcast that goes over 5,000 I'm the worst of all possible AJs. I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. And I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. And uh, in case you haven't already sort of figured it out just from that intro, we are fucking back. We are in rare form. And we're getting so much bigger. (laughs) Making our podcast even bigger with us today, we've brought in not one, but two guests. Our first guest is a returning champion. Uh, He last appeared to talk with us about Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Chess. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Andrew Lloyd who? Andrew Lloyd what? And Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, musical Chess. Andrew Lloyd Webber? The musical that he made, yes. Sir Lord yes. Andrew Lloyd Webber? Oh, that's yes. right. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Lord Webber, I think, would be the way, which, uh, either way, no, it was written by Swedes. <laughs> Tim Rice is shaking and vomiting, and he doesn't know why. <laughs> he is the co-host of Blue Balls NYCFC, which is a weekly podcast following the New York City Football Club, MLS's finest. Uh, he also directs theater and organizes with the Democratic Socialists of America right here in New York City. It is, of course, the one, the only, Jake Beckhard. Jake, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, fellas. It's a joy to be back. Hopefully this episode is marginally worse than the last one so that I can (laughs) just sort of keep on heading towards the black hole of destroying your livelihoods. (laughs) Jake Beckhardt is also my arch nemesis in real life. Our second guest is uh, a playwright. Uh, His work deals with questions of globalization, capitalism, uh, how we relate to each other, 
uh, what the fuck was going on with those uh, Trade Federation negotiations at the beginning <laughs> of Star Wars Episode One? He is also a certified comrade. It is Andy Boyd. Andy, welcome. I'm happy to be here, and I'm definitely following all these jokes and references. Great. I'm so glad to hear it. So, Jake, Andy, you're both here because you are about to open a play. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I'm directing Andy's play, which is called Three Scenes in the Life of a Trotskyist. Uh, it's a, I would say, a, an, an epic in three scenes across the 20th century about a man, a fictional man based on many real men. He starts out life as a uh, city college Trotskyist, arguing with some of the folks who will one day become the New York intellectuals and the vanguard mm. of, of intellectual discourse around the entire political spectrum in the 20th century. So we go through, you know, an experience of him as a young man. We meet him later as a college professor at Columbia and finally end with him leading a, a right wing think tank, which is based in upper Manhattan and the, the Upper West Side. So we really just travel, you know, 20 blocks at a time and 20 years at a time <laughs> through this man's reactionary <laughs> life. It is, to me, the story of how uh, a person with extremely strong principles and commitments to his ideas can end up on the entirely opposite side uh, in terms of effect of his politics, mostly by his fierce commitment to being right. And of course, Andy, you are the playwright. So all of this begins with you. So tell us, how did this idea start? This play is something that's been kind of gestating in my mind for a very long time. Uh, when I was in college, I, I read a bunch of these guys, the kind of New York intellectuals, and I just love the idea of this kind of, you know, small band of largely self-taught leftist literary critics and sociologists and historians and stuff who combined a, a commitment to anti-authoritarian Marxism with uh, a serious engagement with modernist literature. Um, and then I kind of researched more about them and found out that almost all of them became like real reactionary shitheads towards the end of their lives. And this trajectory that you see with the New York intellectuals specifically, but it's is kind of shockingly common across American history. I mean, we can think of examples mm -hmm. like, you know, Christopher Hitchens, somebody who makes a similar journey. Um, Eugene Genovese, who yep. was a great uh, Marxist historian of, of slavery and the Civil War, whose last book was about how the agrarian school is actually right, which is just an incredible <laughs> heel turn. I don't, you know, I was kind of just trying to figure out like what sort of, you know, electromagnetic field exists in America that that pulls these people to the right. I, I was in a writer's group that was kind of inspired by the work of George Bernard Shaw. And I had this idea mm. that this would be like a very, a very Shaw type idea to, to write a play mm. about you know, how people's ideas change. But whereas in Shaw's, uh, people come out with better ideas. In my play, people come out with worse and worse ideas. <laughs> this is such a common assumption in kind of how, how we think about narrative that people grow and learn. But that's that's not been my experience of living in, in, in the world. You know, sometimes people learn, but they learn the wrong things or they grow and they grow in the wrong direction. So I, I kind of wanted to explore somebody who falls further and further away from the light. So that is the arc and subject matter of three scenes in the life of a Trotskyist, which if you check down in the link, It's opening now. It's opening now. Get oh that ticket, God! baby. Broadway is back. Broadway's, Broadway's back. back. Uh, I did also a just want- Avenue is back, but yeah. That's right. I did also <laughs> just want to note that the evening performance of Sunday the 25th, which is just in a few days, if you're listening to this episode when it drops, uh, I will be moderating a post-show roundtable after the performance uh, with David Cleon and Sam Adler-Bell, who are both really brilliant. Uh, you might know Sam is one of the co-hosts of Know Your Enemy. So mm. if you're into learning more about this kind of stuff, uh, don't hesitate to check that out. 
And again, link down in the comments. So because of the subject matter of this play, Jake, you specifically had pitched me on this idea of coming on to talk about Reds, which is a 1981 motion picture that Warren Beatty did literally everything on, <laughs> including <laughs> fuck Diane Keaton. <laughs> so wh why why did you pick this movie and what made you so excited to talk about it? Jake, Andy, either of you. I want to I need to jump in and honor the fact that Andy is the one who did come up with the idea. And, and idea. When, but I'll say uh, the minute that he texted it to me, I popped a big boner because this is my <laughs> I didn't need to know that. Absolute. It is. It is. It's my favorite movie. It's I, I have. Really? Like, really? Wow. Yeah, I have conflicting wow. feelings about it, but I've certainly the only movie that I've seen more than this movie is Garden State. And that's. <laughs> <laughs> God, that it, oh my god! I mean, they're basically because you same. were trying to get laid in the mid two thousands. That's right. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. right. And Reds is because you were trying to get laid in the mid twenty tens. Yeah. <laughs> Jake, if truly, if someone were asked me to describe you as a person, I would say, yeah, the perfect middle section between Reds and Garden State. <laughs> and then, and then that person unreal. who asked you, that person who asked you, would say, "What's Reds?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is an audio only medium. I didn't expect to get seen. I, 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 I did not come to this podcast to be perceived. God damn it! Yeah, yeah. well, and this is a, this is a question I have because this is a more obscure movie, regardless of the success that it had uh, in its first run. What was your first experience with the movie? So I found Reds in college. You know, I went to acting school. I uh, I, I found oh, out pretty where? quickly that I wasn't very good at it. It's not important. <laughs> um, I went to NYU. Both both AJ and I. AJ and I met at NYU, which is how I find we myself. We are fighting here. violets. Both. I was in a Chekhov class and uh, got assigned a, a, a Petya scene from uh, the Cherry Orchard. Petya Trofimov mm -hmm. is this sort of you know young radical. You know he's a he's an ideas man. And my teacher, who everybody sort of took as like took her word as God, was like, "Here's what you have to do to work on this role. You have to watch Reds because you know Warren mm. Beatty captures to me everything." about what makes this guy this guy and I uh, didn't yeah. actually do it but then later that summer I was like oh I remember that movie that she was talking about and I watched Reds and I lost my fucking mind I, I, I just had never seen a movie operate on so many levels at once because I was an acting student then I was obsessed with the performances but at the same time I was yeah. sort of I mean it was also right around the time that I was trying to kick up my my, my film knowledge a little bit and so I was watching some more historical epics I watched Cleopatra because I had just seen oh um, boy <laughs> I know. Well, that's it. Exactly. Like I had just seen uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I was like, I think Elizabeth Taylor's my whole thing. And then I watched Cleopatra mm. and I was like, never mind. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was looking. And then I saw this movie and I was like, this is an epic. This is what an epic is and could and should be. It just, mm. uh, it yeah. just mm. like hit me like the Maxell ad, you know, hair blown back. Like, and I could not talk to everybody <laughs> that I knew about it. As an epic, it's, it's sort of an interesting movie within film history because it's very much a like new American cinema movie. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's Warren Beatty and Stein Keaton. It's one of the, yeah, it's one of the last of that era. And that era sort of started as like a rebellion against big epics. And it is very sort of anti-DeMille in, in sort of the way that it handles its scope. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get a big battle scene even when they go to Russia in the revolution. Like, what is the revolution? Mostly talking. You know, it's like mostly <laughs> a lot giving of guys a, in big rooms. Giving it's a, a bunch of soldiers hanging out of like a large truck. Yeah, uh, you, know? you don't get the storming of the Winter Palace. Like, there you, there are these big set pieces that you could have that just mm -hmm. just aren't in there at all. It is an epic in terms of the the scope and scale of it, but it it always preserves a very sort of like 
human uh, drama as well. And of course, it it is a, not a prequel exactly, but it but it covers a span of time in in the uh, American communist movement that does set the stage for where we begin our play. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. just like just mm. on that level, right, like it's everything that it's talking about in terms of where or the, the only thing missing, I think, is the shift into into Stalinism, the the relationship between American and and Soviet communism and uh, and and where how American communism is reckoning with Soviet communism in our play ties back to the span of days that this movie covered or of years that the movie covers. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in, in terms of how your play relates to this movie and a lot to unpack regarding just this movie in general. So let's start by just looking at the context, looking at where this all began, who was Warren Beatty? How was he able to get something this unusual made? And a lot of the information we have on the behind the scenes of this movie comes from Peter Biskin's article in Vanity Fair, which we have linked in the notes. Go check it out. It's an exceptional article about the making of an exceptional film. This film is the brainchild and was made by the sweat, blood and tears of Warren Beatty. He he dragged this movie behind him and over the finish line uh, with and was basically a husk of a man by the time he let's, did. Let's, let's be clear, though. He he. He extracted a lot of sweat, blood, and tears from all <laughs> of, of those closest to him. The, yeah, most <laughs> of the people closest to him. Um, but to give you some context for Warren Beatty, um, the last time that we talked about him on this podcast was when Patrick Willems came on to talk about oh, yeah, uh, that's Boss right. Beatty. The, because, the Boss Beatty. <laughs> the Boss Beatty. Uh, because uh, Warren Beatty uh, hold, retains the rights to Dick Tracy and refuses to let them go. Yeah, Beatty that, has this incredible power for negotiating a deal. Right. Yes. There are some artists out there who are incredibly artistically ambitious and fast, but they're not necessarily great in the boardroom. Beatty gets these like iron fucking clad contracts to do whatever he wants. A lot of people right. call him the the Josh Borman of Hollywood. Um, yeah, that's right. They they do that. And ever since Josh got a publicist, he has been insufferable on this podcast. Well, and one, one of the best examples of that is dick tracy which goes far beyond him making a dick tracy movie but he himself warren Beatty, the man the has man. the rights to dick tracy as a movie not the studio that he made it with he himself and so every like 10 years or 15 years or whatever whenever that that whenever uh, the moon enters the eighth <laughs> house warren Beatty emerges from his coffin and gives a wonderful performance where he zooms with him wonderful is not the right word it's a bad it's a bad word for this because he whenever that contract is about to lapse he finds some sort of weird bullshit way to hold on to dick tracy so that no one else can have him right and so he yeah. Made like a documentary in the mid 2000s that is one of the most confusing and frightening things you'll ever see. And then he somehow topped it by going yeah. on TCM and chatting around with Ben Mankiewicz while in costume and just being Dick yeah, Tracy just like himself on with a him Zoom on call. Zoom. Yeah, so fucking yeah, weird. So but then Warren Beatty then Dick Tracy then confronts Warren Beatty to tell him what a terrible job he did playing <laughs> him. <Right>. Dick Tracy, <laughs> who is being played by Warren Beatty so it's like it, it really is a it's a wonderful watch Beatty I, I also did this in the it. 90s when he made the movie Bullworth 
He had gotten mm. a deal with a previous executive of the studio who had been gone for like a decade. But he's like, no, look at the clause. I'm going to do a movie where I rap. And you can't <laughs> fucking stop me. So in the mid 1960s, Beatty had the idea of turning John Reed's life into a motion picture. Uh, yeah. He visits the Soviet Union in 1969 with his girlfriend. He teaches himself a little Russian. And uh, Sergei Bondarchuk, who yeah. uh, I am told uh, by Brian directed a pretty good war and peace. Hmm. Uh, uh, good isn't even like a word that needs to be near war and peace. War and peace is simply the largest thing ever made. Right. Bondarchuk made, made this enormous <laughs> fucking film with like full blown recreations of the battles with Napoleon. Mm. It has to be seen to be believed. It was created over the course of the decade. So like people were dead and had to be recast before they finished the whole thing. Everybody kept is, everybody kept walking away from it saying, OK, now <laughs> the this movie is epic. Yeah. The movie literally starts in space. Like they brought it. They had the cosmonauts drop a camera oh my God. from the orbit of the Earth onto Russia. And that is the opening shot of the film. That was the last thing like it did, actually. Oh, um, oh, oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Poppy. Anyway, so um, she was an uh, excellent photographer. <laughs> he was. He was. She. Uh, what a good boy. Uh, but she. What she. a good girl. I can't stop gendering Leica. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh God, this is going so poorly for me. Uh, good girl. So, um. <laughs> Basically, he turns it was creepier that time. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I'm just good, stamping good canceled like on your a, forehead right now, AJ. Oh, good girl. Like, I'll take a picture. Stop. No, um, no, this is not AJ's doghouse. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's, that's the, the other that's universe. The other universe. <laughs> oh, Andy, Andy, I'm so sorry. We're just talking about great. all of our lore. I mean, this it really is. I did so I've, much work. I've waited so long to hear AJ call me a good girl. It's totally worth it. Now I can't cut it. Okay. <laughs> Putting that on the board. Um, oh, boy. So, Bondarchuk offers Beatty uh, the role of playing Jack Reed in a yeah. film that he is making. And two Beatty's, films. Two films. Two films. And, and they're, Beatty they're, was like, they're big epics. One is set in Mexico and one is set around the revolution. Yeah. Very, the Mexico I mean, stuff very in cool. Reds is like 15 seconds. It's unreal. Yeah, it's we that. have one shot of him like wearing a sombrero <laughs> and running behind something. Do you think yeah. they, did they make that movie? Movie? Like, did they make that part of the movie and then just say, like, uh, forget it? That's a good question. This this movie yeah. broke records with how many, like, miles of film it it like had filmed on. Tons, it, I it think. broke the record that Apocalypse Now had set two years earlier. <laughs> Which wow. was exactly what they were afraid of. And then Terrence Malick was like, hold my fucking beer, motherfucker. <laughs> you, you think you've shot miles of footage? You ain't seen nothing yet. Oh my God. I'm going to make a movie where I cut the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so uh, he turns him down because uh, Beatty turns uh, Bondarchuk down because he doesn't like the script, right? Yeah. I am assuming, uh, as we mentioned before, like there, are, as you were saying, Andy, like there were a lot of opportunities to do these big, like epic uh, uh, battles, like, you know, the taking of the Winter Palace. But in fact, uh, uh, he didn't want to focus on that. He was much more focused no. on Jack Reed as a character. So well, and truly, instead, I don't think he wanted to be an actor. He wanted mm. to be the guy who had total control. And something that I wanted to point up here is that we've been saying the name John Reed a lot, but I don't think we've mm -hmm. actually explained who John Reed is. Uh, and we'll be talking about him a lot over the course yeah, of this episode. Yeah. What you need to know right now is that John Reed uh, was an American writer and socialist who was in Russia at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution. 
Yes, he wrote a book called 10 Days That Shook the World. Uh, have y'all read? Has anyone here read the book? I've, Ten, Ten I've skimmed it. How, how is how, how is it? Andy? I got how to day three and I, I, I got the gist of it. It's not yeah. as good as Louise Bryant's stuff in my my own opinion. Oh, interesting. Really? I, I think it's pretty good. I think it really captures the like sense of fervor and excitement of the October Revolution. Um, yeah. it's, it's pretty long on speeches. Like they he quotes, you know, Trotsky and Lenin at great length. Mm. Which is makes it useful as a historical document. And there was an edition published by international publishers, which was like the communist press for for years. Yeah, it, it gets a, in the way a little bit of the narrative because you're like, OK, it's another yeah. big speech. But, you know, he does a good job. And for somebody who didn't really know Russian, it's pretty amazing uh, how how useful he was able to make the book. So John Reed is really important to, I think, especially the early Soviet identity. And I mean, he was certainly inspiring to, uh, I think, a lot of. Uh, young communists and socialists and yeah. uh, weirdly to one liberal capitalist named Warren Beatty. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Warren Beatty uh, worked on the George McGovern campaign for a while. He was yep. a he was a big organizer of sort of uh, a lot of fundraising events. He had also worked on Bobby Kennedy's campaign and then became a gun control advocate after the assassination. Right. And uh, when George McGovern eventually got the Democratic nomination uh, in 1972, he locked himself in a hotel room. And uh, over the course of Warren four Beatty. days, George, not George Warren McGovern, Beatty. No, George, McGovern, <laughs> George McGovern went on a bender. He locked himself in a hotel room, did shots off of. I mean, after I losing know, uh, like 48 states to Richard Nixon, I'd probably do the same. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair. Very true. Very true. Warren Beatty locked himself in a hotel room and uh, did the, uh, the treatment. Uh, for this, uh, the outline yeah. for what would eventually become Reds. Uh, and this was in 1972. Filming would not start until 1979. And there were for a lot of reasons for this. Yeah, this uh, did, ended up in development hell, basically, right? Well, it ended up in Warren Beatty's development hell. Yes. That's the thing. He's really good at negotiating a deal. He does not get his shit set down. He takes a very fucking long time to make stuff. Well, that's why yes. I get so angry yeah. when people call him the Josh Borman of Hollywood, you know, <laughs> because Josh's publicist is in the background giving a big thumbs up. You know, we can get a microphone for her. We need it. No, um, she has a terrible voice. So Beatty hires on this guy named Trevor Griffiths, who is a uh, British playwright who wrote a play called Comedians. Has anyone read Comedians? Great. So it's a play uh, I also haven't read because no one's read it. And it feels like one of those 1970s plays that was revolutionary for, I guess, taking place in real time. So this collaboration did not go well. Uh, this is a quote from the Vanity Fair article again. Griffiths returned to New York in the middle of 1978 to hash out the script with Beatty. This is after years of just going back and forth uh, and meeting up in hotel rooms. We sat down in a hotel room at the Carlisle and we worked for about four and a half months, Griffiths recalls. Yeah, he, he describes this basically as a fist fight. Right. Like Beatty just is like, OK, here's the hotel room where we're going to hurt each other. I'm going to punch you for real with my hands. Yes, <laughs> uh, it was a pretty unpleasant four and a half months. Really painful. I was sitting in a room for six or eight hours a day with a guy that I was increasingly growing to detest and who was increasingly growing to detest me. Eventually, Griffiths walks out. Um, yeah. They get into a fight about a specific scene and Griffiths just leaves and never comes back and never sees Warren Beatty again. <laughs> He's just gone. But so basically, uh, Beatty then does, I think, the smartest thing he could possibly do 
uh, if you were making a film during this time period, which is bring on Elaine May to do some script work. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Um, Jake, you are pumping your fist. Uh, Tell me your thoughts on Elaine May. I just, anywhere you look, it's like Elaine May uncredited. You know, it's so, it really is amazing. And she's just the savior of American cinema at this time. I mean, she wrote some of Tootsie. (laughs) Truly. It's wild. Hey there, you are listening to a preview of a premium episode of The Worst of All Possible Worlds. If you'd like to listen to the rest of this, head on over to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash worst of all. And you can listen to not only the rest of this episode, but our entire backlog of premium episodes, bonus episodes. And if you subscribe at the $10 tier, you will get an extra episode of the podcast every single month. Again, that is patreon.com slash worst of all. Hope to see you there.